This episode was originally a live conversation recorded at Startup Night's Winter Tour in November 2023. We realized it's about as much work for us to enter this market if we do it for North America or for a small market like Switzerland. And quite obviously, the number of mobile developers, relevant retail organizations, etc. in North America is much bigger. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. If you enjoy listening to our show, make sure to follow the podcast and leave a rating. And now, here's your host, Sylvan. Good afternoon, everyone. Great to see many faces here for the opening of this afternoon. My name is Sylvan, I'm the host of the Swisspreneur podcast, and it's my pleasure to host the upcoming Fireside Chat. And this Fireside Chat is with a rare breed. He is the co-founder and CEO of Scandit, one of the rare Swiss unicorns. And Scandit is the leading technology platform for mobile computer vision and augmented reality solutions. Please welcome here on stage, Samuel Muller. It feels like coming home, sort of, you know, after the podcast we already did together. Great to be here in two ways, right? I, I don't think you know that I actually grew up in Winterthur, so this is coming home twice. Yeah. Fantastic. And today we want to talk about scaling up. You have an impressive journey of scaling up Scandit. Before we jump into that topic, I want to sort of go back a bit into the memories of your company. If you think back and have to pick one, what is one of a beautiful memories, a really strong memory that you have of building Scandit? Yeah, I mean, as you suggest, I mean, there are obviously many, many memories that we've accumulated over the years. One specific memory that does stand out is uh, after we had raised our Series A round and ultimately raised that on the promise that we were going to go out and hire a lot of people. So not only did we have seven and a half million dollars fresh money in the bank, but also at the big task of uh, more than doubling the size of the company thereafter. So that was a big moment for us that I remember fondly. I can imagine. And on the other hand, we all know the startup roller coaster can be a bumpy road with lots of ups and downs. Yeah. If you had to pick one, what was the biggest mistake and something you would do differently today on your Scandit journey? Yeah, many big mistakes. Obviously, again, all mistakes and the size of the mistakes also compared to the context at the time. So one particularly painful mistake that we made, that really I made, was to hire the wrong sales leader in the US after we had, that was after we had raised our first equity round, our seed round, and wanted to really grow the business in North America. So we super enthusiastically hired this first global sales leader, uh, sadly, then realized after a while it was the wrong person. We didn't really know what we were doing and then had to come to terms with it, find a way to part ways with the person and uh, restart from scratch. So it cost us over a year in time, uh, this well, mistake. And that was also probably a very tough conversation to have. Yeah, very tough. Yeah. So we want to talk about scaling today. And usually before you can even scale your company, you have to hit product market fit. Mm -hmm. We all talk about that, but when did you actually feel that you really hit and nailed the product market fit at Scandit. How did that feel and how did you notice that? Yeah, I think the reality is, in hindsight, this is 
this is very easy, right? And it, I think it sounds easy. Um, at the moment, it's always hard. So in our case, when we started out, we started with a big vision of connecting everyday things with us as people through the lens of a uh, smart device. Now, we quickly realized that the, the camera of these smart devices was going to be a universal sensor that could help us bridge that gap. Um, and we also realized that barcodes are highly standardized, pre-deployed, well understood, and relatively well behaved. So through the camera of these camera phones and smartphones later, mm -hmm. we can sort of build a bridge between the physical and the digital world and start to take a big first step towards this mission. So when we, when we had those first insights and the first set of algorithms that would allow us to read barcodes through the lens of a camera, we started to think about how to take this capability to market. And the first three ideas and uh, um, options that we saw were, first, we could take these algorithms and license them to smartphone manufacturers. Second, we thought, okay, we could go and license to mobile app developers or independent software vendors. And third, we thought, okay, we could take this capability and with this unfair advantage, build a vertically focused mobile application ourselves. And so that was the starting point when we uh, tried to figure out product market fit. We, after a couple of failed attempts, we quickly realized that licensing to these uh, smartphone manufacturers wasn't going to be easy and it wasn't the right time to do that. Mm -hmm. So we looked at the two other options and um, we uh, actually ended up trying two things at once. So we, on the one hand, launched a mobile app for mobile barcode scanning where we felt this is a very timely topic at the time. People are very interested in it. And with uh, these uh, scanning capabilities, we have a, a bit of an unfair advantage. At the same time, we realized that there is so many applications for these core technology. So it's really a bit of a problem looking for solutions and applications. And it's hard to pick the right one. And that was the very early days of the mobile app economy. Um, and so we realized a lot of mobile app developers will need data capture and, and, and scanning capabilities. And so that, that was the starting point. So we launched this mobile application and at the same time started to listen very carefully to all the inbound interests that we were gathering from other mobile app developers who wanted to license this core scanning technology. That gave us a lot of initial market signals. Mm -hmm. And from there, we started to segment the market in terms of the specific use cases and sub-regions where we could be more proactively offering this uh, scanning technology. And that allowed us really to identify the initial market segment where indeed we did have product market fit. But again, in reality, it probably was a one and a half year journey to get there. Yeah. But this inbound interest, that's probably one of the key indicators that gives you a hint if you're heading in the right direction or not. I think it shows that you have a product that's compelling and that creates value. Mm -hmm. What it doesn't do is it doesn't necessarily give you the key to how to uh, build a go-to-market motion that is effective and, and, and ultimately worthwhile from a commercial perspective. Yeah, fair point. Then after you hit product market fit, what many Swiss startups then do is thinking about other markets, other geographies that they can expand to. And naturally, we're here in Switzerland, so 
many coaches to Germany, maybe to Austria, to expand within our neighbor countries. Was that also the case for Scandic? Uh, quite the opposite, in fact. So, um, and I think the reason why this is, in our case, we went to the US as our first um, region that we, that we focused on. The reason for that was uh, the combination of the two factors that I just mentioned beforehand. So when we decided to follow this parallel or dual strategy, having this mobile application that we were going to be launching, and on the back of that, mm -hmm. start to seed the market uh, with this scanning capability and, and drive developer interest, we realized it's about as much work for us to enter this market if we do it for North America or for a small market like Switzerland. And quite obviously, the number of mobile developers, relevant retail organizations, etc., in North America is much bigger. The technology we had was one that was highly distinguished, highly differentiated, didn't really exist uh, anywhere else. So we figured uh, it's much better to go for the big market uh, right away and obviously then identify the right um, market segment within that large market, in our case, consumer apps initially for price comparison, product information lookup, early scan-and-go applications of retailers that we should go after. And so that, that led us to the conclusion that we should, even with very limited resources at the time, better focus our energy and effort to crack this much larger market. I like what you said a lot because it's hard to crack open a new market and the leverage by going into a bigger market if the effort is more or less similar, it makes a huge difference afterwards for your success of the company. But to execute and build that, you of course also need employees, so that's probably the next level where you then scale. First of all, did you always sort of hire the talent yourself, or did you start to work with external recruiters to fulfill positions and basically grow your team with, with their help? So in our case, we started out, uh, again, I alluded to this a bit earlier, um, so the first three, three and a half years, we bootstrapped the business. So there wasn't really a lot of hiring going on. So we grew the company in that time span to about 12, 13, 14 people over three and a half years. So very slow pace. Um, then we did our first seed round. On the back of that, we grew the company to about 35-ish uh, people. We did that through a combination of our own hiring. So established our own hiring process, uh, went to hiring fairs, etc., and combined that with uh, recruitment agencies, a very typical approach, obviously reserved the recruiting agencies for the special hires. Uh, we were still very cost-sensitive at the time, and the 25-30% off of the base salary was, was hurt our soul still yeah. at the time. But then when we closed our Series A that I mentioned at the beginning, we were really in a position where we had made big promises to our new investors that we were going to be scaling the business from 30, 35 people to more than 80 people within less than a 12-month period. Mm -hmm. And so the first person we hired was a head of talent acquisition along with a sourcer and a coordinator to deal with the volume of hiring that we had to deal with. Yeah. And how do you then also adapt the internal communication? Because... You know, the, in, I think it's Ben Horowitz who says in his book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, every time you sort of triple your company size, all communication breaks apart. You basically did that. You went through that multiple times. So how do you adapt your internal organizational communication structure to keep up with that change in growth? 
Yeah, I think it's it's true, and probably Ben Horowitz is tripling is is probably even um, too optimistic in my view. I mean, if you think about it, if you if you're a team of 25 people, communication is easy, especially if you're co-located, right? You come together over lunch, and maybe you have some like more formal check-ins, but that that that's typically sufficient. If you're 100 people, or 250 people, or 500 people, right? You, you, organizationally, you have to have different levels and structures. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's not only necessary that you establish more formal communications cadences where, as an organization, you think about how often and with whom you, say, review, refine, change, and reestablish your strategy and set your objectives, but it's also necessary that you do this while being mindful across the levels. And you may end up communicating very differently to, obviously, to your leadership team, to your next level leaders, and then to leaders at the next level and their their actual staff and so on. So the combination of um, more centralized communication vehicles like, say, a bi-weekly CEO update, a monthly all-hands, a departmental all-hands at the back of that, or um, uh, individual one-on-one communication. So all, all has its time and place. And on top of that, you also work with OKRs as part of your operating system. That's a very important part. Can you tell us why? Yeah, I mean, generally, I think it's super important that as a business and especially as a scaling business, you're very mindful of the operating system that you do put in place. And I think there is many great ways to to do that. I think it's important that you establish one and that that you stick to it and evolve it systematically. In our case, we have been um, serving us from a couple of sources. One, OKRs, as you're saying. The other is uh, the scaling up methodology. And then we've sprinkled a lot of Scandit-specific learnings on top of that. Um, OKRs, I think, are a great mechanism to, one, align the company, the different departments, the different teams around a set of common goals, and to be very particular about how you measure and define success on a regular basis. That helps, obviously, uh, keep everyone focused on on the same issues and the same objectives. It's also a great communications instrument, and it's a great driver of accountability across the business, given that OKRs are typically a very public instrument. So within the business, we're fully public about all the different OKRs that occur at all different levels, and everyone can go there and check them out. Fantastic. And with the growth of the company, culture of course, it's always important, but probably gets a bit more challenging because you have more people involved. How do you make sure that your culture does not get out of hand when you bring more people into your company? I think the first thing you, you may need to do, and we did as well, we did that actually at the time, again, when we went on to that hiring spree for the first time, is to become more specific and more explicit about what your culture is. Mm-hmm. So in our case, again, due to the relatively slow growth at the beginning and then the modest growth up to these sort of 35 people, we never felt it's important to write down our company values. In fact, we were super skeptical about it. But then when we, were, when we knew we were now going to bring on more than 
the amount of people to the business than, that we already employ, we realized it's quite important to get this right. So we spent quite a bit of time with the wider team, especially with our existing team, to really um, distill the values of the business and to identify the things, again, including the operating system that, that is important to us and that, that sort of represents the DNA and the pulse of the business. So that's important. Um, then, of course, as, as the business grows and scales, not just in size, but also, say, across geographies and time zones, there are other factors that need to be taken into account. In our case, our business is fully global. We have team members from um, San Diego uh, all the way to Tokyo. So running a business across all time zones effectively means you need to be mindful of when you communicate and how, right? When, because you need to catch people when they're actually there, and it's not fair if you always communicate at the point in time, say, with an all-hands meeting, uh, when the West Coast employees can join, but the Tokyo employees can never join. So in our case, we rotate across time zones. That's one thing. The other is how you communicate. In our case, we invest in things like culture map and um, building and establishing this intracultural awareness so people become more mindful of how to communicate with um, colleagues from different ethnical and cultural backgrounds, as another example. And then last, especially in a hybrid working environment, we make an effort of being quite intentional about how and when and why we're bringing people together. Um, so oftentimes our conclusion is it's not actually very valuable to bring people together to do some work. A lot of work is more effectively done, in our view, virtually, so using tools like Miro and so on. However, there is an important element of bringing people together for social reasons. And so we, we try and carve out time for that specifically for with like regional or com global company outings, things like micro-adventure days that we have where we really allow people in smaller groups to go, go out and do something cool and so on. I love that. We could continue for probably one or two hours to talk about culture, but there's one topic I really want to address last. Sure. How do you stay physically but also mentally healthy as a founder and CEO when scaling up your company? Because pressure, stress, everything just seems to exponentially grow with the size of your company as well. So a couple of points. I think for, first, it's, it's helpful if you, if, you, if you hire great people that do the work for you and yeah. you don't have to worry about everything. Um, secondly, obviously, you need balance. And in my case, I enjoy sports, I enjoy reading, and, and, and really I enjoy doing things that keep me very much in the moment so my mind doesn't wander and goes and like, worries about things. And probably the biggest lever I have there is my wonderful family, and specifically not just my wife, but also the, the three kids we have who really don't allow for me to do anything else when I'm with them, so they keep me very relaxed and focused in my mind as well. Fantastic. And to wrap up the conversation today, I also want to ask you some rapid-fire questions. Sure. I'll just give you a few options to choose from. First one, VC money or bootstrapping? Smart investing. <laughs> okay. How did you feel when you hit the unicorn status? I think it was a bit of a, 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 a holy cow moment, right? Because you're in the middle of doing things and you, you don't ever 
step back and look at what you're doing. And that, that's, uh, I think it's more of a milestone, but it shows you, oh, wow, maybe we're gradually getting out of the woods here. Yeah. Grow for profitability? Profitable growth. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Europe or the United States? Mm, whatever makes sense. Okay. Software or hardware? Software, definitely. IPO or trade sale as an exit strategy? It's not so much about the exit strategy. It's more about delivering against the vision. So whichever step makes the most sense at that given time. I think that's the perfect sentence to end the conversation. Samuel, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, all the best for the future. Thanks so much for having me. It was great fun. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs. <laughs>